You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Well, Glenn, we just celebrated uh, Thanksgiving, so uh, uh, do you know how a turkey eats? I do not. It gobbles it up. <laughs> wow. Wow. Are we really going to start off with that? <laughs> is that is that, what, is that the foot we're going to get off on? <laughs> my, uh, my daughter uh, brought that home from school uh, last week, and I thought, oh, perfect dad joke. Got to <laughs> include it somehow. Man, okay. So, uh, All right. yeah, it's been a little while. Um, I've yeah, kind of faded away here a little bit. Yeah, the the hiatus is kind of kind of on my shoulders here. Um, but uh, we should be back and and ready to go. Uh, I'm feeling a little better and and um, um, yeah, looking to to jump back in with both feet. I kind of had to just take a a few weeks or a couple months actually. Um. Yeah, step back and I, don't know, I kind of step back from a bunch of stuff. So now I'm really behind and have to have to jump back into. Yeah, it's just been kind of a uh, a time of change for me that you know, I needed to kind of step away and and focus on other things. But I, I know our our listeners have been clamoring for <laughs> for more material, and and um, I'm glad to be back and and uh, putting some more stuff out there. Yeah, I mean, if the listeners are binge listening as some do then they won't even notice that we were gone <laughs> right, right right but but those that yeah listen weekly yeah i've been getting a lot of emails and questions and running into people and people you know noticed it was it was kind of nice to hear that we have assisted in some way through training or education or right. just information uh, so many examiners around around the world and uh you know i I, I look forward, you know, to hearing about some of the, the changes you're going through and some of the things that are coming up. Um, I, I can assure the listeners that we did not have our sex change that we promised. Uh, you're not Erica and I'm not Glenda. Um, Glenn that, or Glenda. That might be another episode. Hey, right? that's, that, was a, that was an Ed Wood movie, wasn't it? Glenn that, or Glenda? That wasn't that was an Ed Wood movie. That's correct. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure. Where did those rumors start? I didn't... I didn't... <laughs> Oh, you didn't hear those rumors? No, I didn't hear oh. those rumors come Oh, well. <laughs> well, never mind. I might have started those. Maybe, maybe not. It's hard to say. Oh, okay. Um, but, yeah, I've certainly missed uh, podcasting, and there's been a lot going on, you know, to talk about in the last couple of months. But, yeah. you know, I wanted to give you some space and make sure that uh, you, you were ready to come back when you wanted to come back and that uh, – we're we're certainly both motivated here to to continue. So absolutely looking forward to getting some updates uh, when you're able to provide them. Yeah, yep. All right. So what are what are some of the things you've been doing in the last uh, maybe last couple of months? I, actually, since the IAI is probably when we've really last recorded something. If yeah. I recall. Yeah, it really has been that long. Um, well, I, I did you know as you know get to see you uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, uh, Penny and I went up to teach our exclusionology class up in Minneapolis. Uh, ended up being a really great class um, with uh, you know, a lot of Minnesota people, but you know a few um, driving or flying in from um, from those from the central time zone mostly. Um, and uh, we got to have some some uh, some good food and uh, good drink and good company at the uh, Gastoff. Uh, so that yes, was uh, my, my favorite. Uh, well, one of my favorite restaurants here in Minneapolis. Uh, it's a German restaurant, the Gasthof Zur Gemütlichkeit. Gemütlichkeit, yes. Which is like uh, the guest house of good feelingness and good, hospitality. Good feelings. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's good, like a, it's one the, of those, the house of good times. Yeah. It's one of those German words that doesn't like quite translate, but. Um, yeah. It's like a it's a German mindset, I guess, that they ex, even expect on vacation. I, I've heard 
that there was somebody who actually sued their travel agent because their their vacation did not include um <laughs> really? yes <laughs> that's pretty good <laughs> uh so, had to <laughs> wow so yeah gimmicklikite evidently is a very important concept um to to the the germans so um right right next to farfignugen <laughs> gesundheit um <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm going to start throwing out like silly, the only, the few German words uh, I know. Oh, my great-grandparents would be so disappointed. Um, but, um, yeah, that was that was kind of the big, you know, trip that I've had recently. Um, you know, other than that, it's been, uh, you know, a lot of uh, work here in the Phoenix area. Um, tonight, ooh got the sweaters out it, it it only got up to 60 today and now it's in the 40s um so so the, the parkas and the and the snowshoes are out and you know everyone across town <laughs> wow um sorry i know I'm, I'm kind of rubbing it into to you know anyone kind of north of here but uh um yeah this is the time that we live for but uh, Thanksgiving was great. Um, you know, it was a little smaller just because different family uh, was you know couldn't make it in from out of town, but um, still had the turkey and all the trimmings. Made my um, favorite cranberry sauce, which includes jalapenos, lime juice, and a little, oh. little bit of tequila splashed in there. Um, yeah, that sounds delicious. Yeah, it's good good cranberry sauce. But uh, how was your Thanksgiving, and what have you been up to? Uh, my Thanksgiving was good, thanks. Uh, I, I actually visited some family in Canada. and uh, In, in was, Langenberg, uh, uh, no, Saskatchewan, no. or Manitoba, wherever no. it was? No, okay. <laughs> no, it was quite the odyssey to get there with travel, but eventually eventually made it for a couple of days and was able to see to see family and also have some Thanksgiving up there. Uh, obviously, their Thanksgiving is... You know, a different time of year in October, right. but they uh, they were able to hold over for us, and it was it was kind of fun. Or as I, and, I, uh, I like I like the idea of them calling our Thanksgiving second Thanksgiving, um, second. kind of kind of like right. a, a Hobbit second breakfast. <laughs> so. Right. Yeah, and uh, I saw my dad, and he he makes uh, he makes an oyster stuffing. It's uh, it's you know bread with oysters in it. And a lot of good flavoring, and that gets uh, you know, baked in the, the the turkey, and it uh, it always reminds me of being a kid having that oyster stuffing. They're kind of salty, seafoody, but it 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 tastes savory because of just all the flavors of the turkey and the you know sage and right. rosemary and, and other. But it's uh, it's delicious, and it it was it was good to have some of that comfort food and. Uh, my kids had a good time. It was it was good. Okay. And and let's see. Uh, before, just before that, I had a chance to go out to fabulous Las Vegas. Not really Vegas, but outside of Vegas. And for the listeners that know Alice Maceo, she she got married, and uh, right. got to go to her wedding. And that was that was actually a lot of fun. A lot of Swigfast folks were there. Had come out. Uh, the old chair of Swigfast, um, Lenny Butts, uh, Tom Busey was there, John Vanderkolk, um, um, Maria Weir from um, L.A. Yeah. Uh, SD and Rochelle Babbler and a, a lot of current OSAC members. So it was, it, for me, it was a nice little reunion of of Swigfast, and I I had a great time nerding out with Tom Busey. I mean, he and I just. <laughs> drank and talked and <laughs> threw theories and ideas at each other and it was just it was very fun i had a chance to meet his lo- lovely wife as well and they're uh, quite a couple so it was uh it was a it was a very relaxing weekend just to be able to do that and then just a quick getaway just two days and back right right uh no i saw um i saw a uh oh, a facebook or something post of you there in vegas um but um I don't think I put it all together. That's why you were there. Uh, but so do do and Alice changed her name now. Is that correct? Uh, 
That's right. It's uh, White is Alice the last White. name. Alice White. Okay. Yeah. Um, yep, and her, her husband's a really great guy, police yeah. officer. I um, met him, I think, at the at the conference. So, yeah, definitely yeah. a great guy. Yeah. Uh, yep, so wish them best of luck and absolutely. happiness. And, uh, yep, it was, it, it was really, really nice. So that was good. And um, but prior to that, but I think I'll talk about it in another episode, I was out in New Zealand in the fall. And, um, boy, I had a chance to see, see and meet some folks from Australia and New Zealand and just good, good people. Great experience. Uh, I was out there. ETL Drawer was out there. We spent quite a bit of time together, ETL and I, um, tooling around with some locals and um, just um, having some nice dinners. Excuse me, talking about some of the issues going on in the profession, and it was, uh, you know, it was it's a very good conference. Uh, the conference itself, the Australia and New Zealand Forensic Science um, uh, uh, FSS is it? Uh, yeah, Forensic Science Society or something like that. Right. It, just a, a a really really good conference. They they had topics and speakers on all different subjects and there's an opportunity to really see different subjects. So even though you're you might be a fingerprint person, you didn't just have to go to the fingerprint stuff. Right. You could right. go to the DNA, the blood stain pattern analysis, uh footwear, drug chemistry, whatever whatever what you wanted to it was a really nice smattering of forensic science topics. And they would might have one afternoon just dedicated to question documents and another afternoon dedicated to blood stain pattern analysis. And just cutting edge research, really good posters and projects. I love the research over in that part of the world in Australia and New Zealand. Just good. I mean, their master's students and PhD students over there are just absolutely incredible and do some amazing work. And, um, I had a great experience, but I know we'll talk about some of that in another episode because I had a chance to sit down with a gal over there who's doing research in physical developer. Oh, okay. And uh, I was able to interview her and get, uh, the, if you will, the the latest cutting-edge knowledge regarding uh, physical developer and, and some of its improvements. So, so they actually got it to work down there? <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, you'll have to listen to okay. the, the you have to listen to the interview because that's one of the things that I bring up is that a lot of people, including my intrepid co-host, uh, do not use PD because it never seems to work. Right. So I I really dug in and asked her, you know, tips and hints and tricks and things that might produce, and and why that might be. So you'll have to take a listen and see what you think. Sounds good. I, I I will say that that uh, for you know the the test print that I leave um, to you know make sure it's actually working, um, it mm-hmm. actually does work beautifully. <laughs> but mm. I don't uh, on actual evidence, man. That's um. Anyway, I will listen yep. and see what I can learn to improve my my processing technique. Well, we'll see. And then just one other little thing out of that conference, uh, some uh, a bit of sad news for anybody that knows Brian Found. Uh, he passed away. I did hear that. Time. Yeah, in fact, he passed away like the next week when I got back. So I had just seen him. And it was so bizarre because I don't really know him. I know of him. In fact, I've known some of his students over the years and I've read his papers. And I know he was a bit of a lightning rod because he was promoting error rates and... Uh, the concept that question document examiners should have uh, gone through proficiency and uh, competency testing and specialized testing where they have their error rates measured. He thought that um, it was very important that if you don't have statistics for your um, for your discipline, then the next best thing and the most important thing is to be able to provide an error rate for that kind of test, which will lead in, of course, I think at some point to our discussion here later in the episode of PCAST. Right. But you know, this was one of his views, and for years he had been um, you know, controversial and 
in developing these workshops and trying to develop error rates and error rate testing programs for question document examiners. And he gave a very nice presentation there. And I saw him all throughout the conference at various social functions. In fact, the very last evening, I saw him out uh, at the pub. He was dancing uh, with his <laughs> partner, and they were all just having fun and drinking and lively. And then just literally a week later, had a heart attack, passed away. And really a shame because uh, he had just done so much in such a short time, you know, I, I think his career was something 20 some years in forensics, but just in, in just a couple of decades had really transformed the face of, of question documents and uh, a real, real shame that he passed away. So, so suddenly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's crazy how that can just all of a sudden just come out of nowhere. Yeah. 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 And and the guy was super thin and fit, and I just kept thinking, you know, because I, I I knew slightly around his age, and just kept thinking, God, this guy looks so young and good for his, you know, for his age. Right. Like, oh man, I mean, he really looked. I don't know. He looked like he was maybe mid forties or something like that, early forties, and just, you know, there you go. Poof. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know what you mean. Anyway, anyway, uh, definitely will be sorely missed, and um, you know those that knew Brian, um, you know, sorry for for everyone's loss there, and uh, truly a loss. But anyway, um, moving on. Uh, so, uh, as I was just talking about there a little bit, a major event happened while we were on hiatus, <laughs> and this uh, infamous PCAST report came out. Eric, uh, uh, did, you, did, did you get a chance to read the report? I, I did not read the whole thing, but I did read uh, big chunks of it and especially the latent print chunk. Um, okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll have some, some stuff to talk about. Sure. Um, overall, though, I, I think this is going to have the exact same impact as the NES report, um, which is a lot of people getting all worked up for a little while and then kind of fading away with, you know, nothing happening. Um, hmm. Especially with the, the, the report, you know, it's the PCAST being the president's council of advisors on science and technology. Um, and, you know, in a couple months getting a new president in, um, yeah, who, who knows what kind of direction that's just going to go in now from here. But um, uh, Yeah, that's a great point. That uh, also happened too, didn't it? Yeah, it did happen. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't see this being uh, overall helpful uh, to, to forensics as a whole or to any specific discipline. Well, I don't think it's going to be helpful to forensics, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> I don't think it was meant to be. I, I mean, I look at it, um, my view, is that it was written for judges as a message to the judiciary that basically said, look, guys, um, you're not doing your job. And your job as gatekeepers under Daubert is to be you know, scrutinizing these disciplines and we know you don't want to we know you don't like science and that you would rather just if it's been accepted before let it come through but you're not really doing your job so we're going to tell you how to do it and we're a bunch of scientists and we think that if you were to properly evaluate these disciplines here are the criteria you should be looking at and these are the the things that we think you should do and if even if you're looking at a discipline that doesn't fall into the ones we're about to review, we're going to give you a roadmap on how you should do that. And if the discipline doesn't use statistics, like, say, DNA, then it's critical that they have essentially black box error rate studies and well-designed error rate studies that attempt to measure error rates for whatever con conclusions that those examiners are providing. And here are the criteria for what would meet an acceptable error rate study, again, as we are defining it and determining it. So to me, it was really not for us. Right. And it was really only for, for judges because I think 
I think when you look at what Edwards said, especially when the NAS report came out, you know, people said, well, this isn't really to tell judges what to do, and they're not supposed to be using this NAS report to either include or exclude evidence. And Edwards turned around very quickly a week after it came out and said, oh, no, you'd be foolish not to as a judge. We're definitely recommending that you use this report for that. And the, in my, my view, the NAS report falls way short of being able to give helpful criticism and insight into the disciplines. This report, I thought, went further and drilled down into the disciplines and gave a critical review of the various studies and the disciplines, while, yes, some of the, the criticisms of the report ignored a number of other kinds of studies, either white box studies or other kinds of studies in each of the disciplines, they ignored a number of, of resources. Uh, but it went down a lot deeper and is supposed to give judges a fairer more um, in-depth view of the discipline so that they can make some assessment for admissibility. I mean, that's that's my view that that's what this is, just a roadmap for admissibility. Well, it may be an attempt at that, but the errors and misunderstandings uh, that they are you know, espousing as absolute fact to you know, judges would be very ill-served to, to use this... Uh, you know, as a way to judge forensic science when uh, on multiple levels uh, it's clearly misguided uh, or just flat wrong. It is so incredibly disappointing. As, as I read through it, it just, just kept shaking my head at, well, that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong and, well, that would be great if you didn't describe it completely wrong and make the wrong assumptions and and make the wrong recommendations from that could you give any examples specifically because i actually did find two factual errors i mean they were factually sure. incorrect errors but did you did you have errors well, as well the 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 first is just the kind of pull it out of the ass you know um statement that uh only the fbi black box and the uh, Pacheco Miami Dade study are the only valid black box studies that have been conducted uh, in latent prints, um, and the uh, and the only reason that latent prints is even acceptable to even consider using from now on is because we have two, as opposed to firearms, which only has one, which makes them um, unusable. Which one that qualified? One that they, qualified. They had others, right? Right, but by their criteria, failed their the the PCAST criteria. And their criteria made no sense. And applying the criteria to qualify Black Box and Miami Dade as the only two that counted made no sense. So that would be kind of the kind of the first error. But then, like kind of like you alluded to, only deciding that Black Box studies is the only thing that matters. Uh, is wrong um, using black box studies to establish an error rate for the discipline of some insanely high number of like five percent is wrong Re and analyzing the data these you know theoretical um, physicists reanalyzing the the raw data from these studies and correcting the uh, the calculations to give to you know, state what the actual error rate should have been was also just incorrect. They, they just they did it wrong. the uh, the uh, The noblest folks in the black box study did the correct calculations, and to think that that these um, that this council just was like, oh no, no no, you did it wrong. Here's the real number from you know from the the data you provided uh, is just asinine. To, to then make these statements that on the upward bound, one in 18 cases is likely to have an error, a false positive error, is just an insane thing to say. I mean, they obviously don't understand how a verification process works and how the studies clearly described how a verification process wasn't included and that with that process, the error rate you know, drops significantly because repeated errors between different examiners are so exceedingly rare. Just the level of understanding of how we actually do our work 
uh, and then what what issues may come from that uh, just seem to be really lacking uh, from their understanding of that, and hence they made these just wildly inaccurate statements. Yeah, and, you know, like the Pacheco study had a number of presumed clerical errors, transcription errors. So, you know, if this, if they want to say at an upper bound that it's 1 in 20 or whatever that have potentially a false positive transcription error, uh, okay, yeah, fine. But I, I do agree that the report does not dis- make a distinction between transcription error versus an erroneous decision. They're lumping them together and they're choosing to do so. Um, for me, I mean, I had two two errors that, factual errors that had I been asked or asked to review the report or, or if it was even open for public comment for uh, review or editing, I would have noted two things. One, they got my error rate incorrect in my <laughs> black box uh, I think they said it was 1 in 15 as an upper bound uh, that that's not correct. It, it's actually uh, eight times that because they said there were, I think, 15 exclusion decisions in the study, and that's not correct. Uh, each exclusion counted for eight exclusions, so it would have been 120 or something like that. In fact, the, the paper very clearly stated when the examiner put down exclusion, that meant they had excluded eight different individuals for that so it's eight separate decisions and the other thing was that they were referencing a study I did with drawer where they were talking about bias and they said that when examiners were provided with the known exemplars that the examiners were more likely to select more features shown to be in comparison uh, you know, if you gave them the the latent print and the known print, they would actually choose more features out of the latent print. You know, the idea is that they're teasing points out of the known exemplar, which was something that the Ian Evett study in '95 had theorized, and we tested right. that, and it turned out to be the exact opposite. That that's not what happened. In fact, when you gave examiners the latent and the known together, they actually chose less minutia in the latent print than more. And the theory here is that while well, you've got the known print that's guiding you a bit to the relevant areas, whereas if you haven't seen the known yet, you select any and every feature possible in the latent print. But if you know what areas are relevant because you've got the, the control print, the exemplar print right next to it, then you might, might not waste your time selecting minutia on the left side of this latent print when the left side isn't even recorded properly in the known exemplar. So it's essentially targeting your attention to the relevant areas. And it, it, the, the PCAST report said the exact opposite. So either they misunderstood the study or had not read it or... I'm not sure, but they concluded the exact opposite of what the the data showed. So uh, I found those two factual errors uh, um, amusing and very minor, though, and could easily have been fixed. I, well, I'm willing to bet both both misunderstanding and and not reading. <laughs> um, but <laughs> okay, um, you know, another aspect of this that uh, I, I heard. Uh, somebody else mentioned is um, is how um, how negative they were to the concept of uh, experience or expertise or skill of the examiner in, in making these decisions um, and that they're like in many other areas they they have a, a seemingly have the goal of of making this a completely objective uh, decision uh, that's made um, for all forensic science disciplines, and um, the, you know the thing that uh, I heard someone mention is is how um, there are some inherent dangers in going down this path, um, and uh, a good example of that is the experience that the uh, medical community had in the 90s when there was this big push for evidence-based medicine and basically removing the experience factor of the doctors um, and 
having it just come down to numbers and data and tests um, to to move forward with um, with treatment and diagnosis uh, and you know et cetera et cetera and you know there have been you know many criticisms uh, and clear examples of how you, you can't have it all one way or the other it has to be a blend of uh, the experience, the expertise, the judgment of the expert, combined with um, with uh, the as with all of this good data, to get you to the best possible answer. Um, I'll 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 take what you're saying there, and I'll take it a step further. I believe that by setting these criteria, whether whether we agree with the criteria or not. They're setting an impossible standard that if judges were to actually apply the standard to all scientific and medical information coming to the courtroom, well, okay, guess what then? Uh, Medical examiners might as well go home now because they certainly do not have a lick, anything close to these kinds of studies. So their opinion is completely inadmissible no medical examiner should come in and talk about cause or manner of death because they've got zero error rates in those kinds of determinations so all right no no medical examiner testimony uh no psychologist no child psychologist no um uh, battered spousal expert there should be zero psychologists walking into that courtroom we should not hear anything from any medical doctor or anything talking about their opinion uh, unless they have tons and tons of data and black box error rate studies to back up those opinions which they likely also don't have proficiency tests or competency tests to also uh, demonstrate you know com- well, they've got their they have their degree and their their medical board but I doubt that they're regularly proficiency tested no well, and you could throw out eyewitness testimony, um, and uh, officer testimony, of crime scene reconstruction or crash reconstruction, um, any even confessions. <laughs> Everything's out. Um, it'll actually kind of unclog the uh, uh, the caseload for for co- the court system pretty quickly, uh, but yeah. Exactly. It, it's it's an insane standard that obviously judges won't and can't implement this without. So they just can't. Um, there, I mean, there may be a couple of judges that try, but it's it's just not going to happen uh, across a wide portion of the country. Um, and I mean, it really is another missed opportunity by academia um by government to to move forensic science into in a positive direction uh and is potentially a a major undercutting to the efforts that forensic scientists have made recently like with osac um and um uh, and steps to have you know increased accreditation and certification throughout the fields um because now so much time is is going to be spent possibly handling all of this garbage instead, um, and I mean it, it may uh, push back further development uh, and progress that, that we really do need to make. Um, I don't know. It's it's just so frustrating to go through this all again. I mean, to me, there are some positives in the in the reports, and if I'm just focusing on latent prints i mean we do get a barely passing grade if you will um thanks i I mean (laughs) yeah yeah uh it's unfortunate that they were somewhat limited in what they would consider to support the validity of different disciplines Uh, again it was very narrow and restrictive but i will say that there was there were some really I thought fair critical reviews of the of the research. If you're just looking at the various studies, uh, it's it's a nice compendium of research, and I think does a good job of explaining uh, upper bound confidence intervals and things like that, lower and upper bound. 
uh, it certainly makes people more aware of the need for error rate testing, uh, the importance of being able to testify about black box study, uh, the FBI black box study and other studies. Uh, it it um, you know it discusses the issue of bias, and I think uh, examiners I've talked to are disappointed that they seem to take the tact that you must do blind testing in all cases when the literature, much of the literature that they cited even, took the position that you should do blind testing under certain conditions when it's most beneficial, you know, complex cases, uh, high-profile cases. Single conclusion. Uh, cases with, with, with contamin- you know, contaminated information, whatever it might be. Right. So, I mean, there there are some, I thought, some positive takeaways. Uh, I can't speak to the other disciplines not being in those disciplines. I know that they're going to have, obviously, a harder time with it and probably get quite a few challenges. But I, I thought I thought for at least fingerprints, there were um, uh, some fair assessments. And uh, I, I don't know that it's going to be as difficult for us as it will be for some of the other disciplines. True. Uh, another, have you have, have you or any of your colleagues had any challenges yet out of it? Oh no, I I haven't been to court since it came out. Um, I'm probably going in about two weeks, two or three weeks. Um, mm, okay. Well, sorry, the case is starting in two or three weeks. I just saw the witness list today, and I'm on like the second page and just a list of names. So um, I, okay. I may may not even be on the stand till next uh, early next year, but. Um, I, I, I don't anticipate anything mainly cause I'm, I don't think I was a, a key part of, um, the prosecution's evidence in that case. Um, okay. but, uh, no, no one else that, um, I've talked to here in Arizona, uh, has had anything like the, anything about this come up yet. Um, hmm. so anyway, I... what about you? Well, not in Minnesota. I'm not aware of any challenges yet, but I know that it's coming up in other states, and I know that Illinois raised it for well, firearms, and um, I, I know those guys, and kind of talked about, uh, kind of talked about some of the challenges they've, right. they've had in uh, Cook County area. Uh, but I, I might be involved here in a case in Florida where it looks like there's going to be a Daubert challenge and PCAST is directly being woven into the the fingerprint and the DNA challenges in the case. Got it. So we'll see if that goes and we'll see what happens with that, but that's probably sometime ne- early next year. I, I'm aware of a case in California that is also having the PCAST issues and that's going to be probably another month or so too. So... I think in the next couple of months we're going to start seeing some of these early challenges starting to hit the hit the venues. Um, so, r- real quick, I'm looking at a section here uh, in latent prints. This is on page, if you're following along, page 102. Um, okay. And it's in uh, validity as applied. And I kind of wanted to break down these these three things that uh, that they say need to be that are important issues that need to be. Uh, addressed. Uh, the first is confirmation bias, um, and um, it talks about how the FBI has shown that examiners typically alter the features that they initially mark in uh, latent print in the latent print based on the comparison with an apparently matching exemplar. And such circular reasoning introduces a serious risk of confirmation bias. Uh, well. Hmm. The, okay, so there, I know I, I know where you're going with this. I think we talked about this. Before. We have. I mean, there is a potential for for that risk of confirmation bias, and they <coughs> further say that examiners should be required to complete and document the analysis of a latent print before looking at the known, which is uh, best practice in the field and has been for a very long time. Um, whether or not it actually happened is you know, on a regular basis and was documented properly, that has been improving. Uh, but it has been the idea of what should have been happening for a very long time. Uh, but the, the data from the white box study clearly shows that um, altering the features, sorry, that failure to alter the features uh, when comparing uh, a, a latent print to an exemplar 
greatly increases the risk of a an erroneous exclusion. Um, right. Different kind of error. Different kind of error. Um, and that, uh, so while again, it's kind of part of it. And yes, you got to document the latent before the known and look at it and do a full thing with it. But you then also, after you do that, need to, if you fail to find the similarities, do it again. And starting from scratch, remark the latent in a, maybe a slightly different way and try again, uh, especially as the difficulty of the comparison increases. Um, so go ahead. It, look, I mean, clearly the report, I mean, throughout the report, makes no bones about it. They really don't care about the false negative error rate. And everything <laughs> about the report is very focused on the false positive. So what really, what are your thoughts on that and the implications of, of that? Because that's really what you're, you're, I think you're getting at here is that if you if you do this kind of procedure, you're very likely to increase your erroneous exclusion rate, yet the report doesn't seem to care that much about false negatives. Well, they should. I mean, I think, um, yes, from a judicial point of view, um, the false, I would agree that false positives are much more um, destructive and harmful to the uh, judicial process. Uh, however, from a purely scientific standpoint, uh, which is where they're coming from, uh, there there shouldn't be a there shouldn't there shouldn't be that emphasis. It, it should be, um, you know, looking at both, or at least understanding um, that that steps need to be taken to reduce the error at both ends, um, and. Uh, if a step would, you know, increase one error rate over the other, then you really do need to take a look to see, you know, how it affects both sides of it. But uh, in this case of, yes, documenting things from the beginning to reduce the risk of erroneous identification, followed by a reanalysis, a remarking of, um, of that latent in a second analysis to reduce the risk of erroneous exclusion. Uh, and that shouldn't have an impact as long as the proper documentation is, uh, is, is tracked from that initial analysis. Really, you can have both. You don't have to uh, solely implement things that reduce the risk of bad IDs, knowing that they're going to increase your, uh, your other errors. Yeah. But I, I think, I think you put your finger on it, that the report seems biased from a judicial standpoint as opposed to what it says it is looking at it from a scientific standpoint. Then they should equally be important. But it doesn't really seem that it is um, treating them equivalent. Right. The second one is the contextual bias. Uh, talking about how um, academic scholars have shown that examiners' judgments can be influenced by irrelevant information. Uh, the, well, the studies I'm aware of show that students' judgments can be influenced by irrelevant information, uh, and that uh, from your stud, your paper, um, that the the case where this you know would come up and make a difference just. Um, doesn't really happen. Um, when you had that one case where there was all that influence, uh, potentially biasing the contextual bias with the one ID and it ended up being like a hundred point palm. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I take their point here that if you look at ETL's papers, academic scholars have shown examiners judgments. They were examiners in those studies, were influenced by irrelevant information. Even the even the contextual bias study I did, although they might have been more inconclusive in their answers, they were still influenced by irrelevant information. So, but I, I take point two. I, I mean, I understand uh, I, point two, but I don't think they do. That that the ah. the um, the risk is is moving away from ID. <laughs> it's moving yeah, yeah, okay. towards an erroneous exclusion. That's where the risk is. 
Um, yeah, they don't they don't say either way. They just say they can be influenced. So, right. uh, yeah, I, I get what your your point being that it's it's more nuanced than that, and maybe they should clarify if they're concerned about false positives. Maybe that's not the real danger. Uh, now, for um, proficiency testing, um, I agree. Proficiency testing is essential, as they say here. Um, and that it should be improved to make it more rigorous. Um, and uh, this is one I actually can totally get behind. Um, uh, I think it would be a great thing if it could be incorporated into casework. Um, also, the current, especially CTS tests, are insanely easy. Um, however, there is a reason that they are that way. And I really do think that it is because the expectation of the QA departments in every agency across the country and of the accrediting bodies is that every examiner will get every test correct 100% of the time. Um, therefore, the tests that are provided to examiners are created to uh, make that a possibility. Uh, I think a much more useful uh, proficiency testing system uh, would be to provide more difficult comparisons and um, to understand that then um, that when errors occur uh, that they are you know that they are handled appropriately instead of just okay one answer is wrong you're off a casework retraining essentially a a potential overreaction yeah. if um, if it is a, a challenging comparison that it, it I guess it, I mean set up more like school you know if if the only way to pass a class is to get every single homework and test question right then the teacher would have to create homework and tests where every student could get everything right However, if uh, proficiency tests were set up where, okay, 85%, 90% is passing um, in the course of you know, continual blind testing throughout the year, uh, then, uh, then QA departments and labs and everyone would have a clear picture uh, at the proficiency level of each examiner. Yeah, I, I think that's a very fair point, and we'd have to, like you say, redesign the test to essentially test something different, test the, the limits of the examiner, uh, and with the, the notion of improvement as opposed to demonstrating basic proficiency or whatever it may be. Right. Uh, it would also have to move away from testing the system like it currently does now. Uh, a, proficiency, a proficiency test tests your entire laboratory system and process as opposed to the specific examiner. You know, because you've got verification involved, uh, you might have your uh, process through your limb system or evidence handling or all these other things part of the proficiency, whereas what you're proposing would get right down to the examiner's limits of their decision-making capabilities. And, I mean, it so, could still, still involve that verification step as well. Um, but, yeah, I, I see I see your, your point overall. So I, I don't know if you had a chance to see this. I actually posted on LinkedIn just uh, a couple of days ago. But the Houston, Houston Forensic Science Center is... Uh, you know, they have a, a fingerprint section. They are going to uh, blind proficiency testing, Ooh. exactly as described, uh, described here. Uh, blind proficiency testing for DNA and for fingerprints. So those examiners down there, uh, hi, Sandy Siegel, uh, <laughs> those examiners down there will be experiencing uh, <laughs> um, proficiency tests that are being essentially slipped in their normal workflow without their knowledge and they won't know if they're working uh, casework or proficiency test so I really look forward and I, by God I hope they publish please yes. publish that yes. um, 
but of course they probably won't. <laughs> but uh, I, I say that only because of my experiences with agencies like FBI and other agencies where they have wonderful data that they can't share with anyone uh, for various reasons and right. liabilities and et cetera. And it's always a shame. But I'm hopeful that they have an eye towards publishing so the community can understand how they did it and uh, to see what kinds of impact doing those sorts of studies would have. I, I you know I spent a few weeks um, before the Houston Forensic Science Center was set up uh, working down there uh, with uh, with Ron Smith when he was you know um, doing the contract work for the Houston lab and I don't know I, I think they'll still be able to tell at least certain cases aren't um, proficiency tests you know when when the latents come in kind of taped with the tape kind of half stuck to a piece of, uh, <laughs> you know, lined college paper or, <laughs> or, you know, whatever other piece of paper that the officer had handy, a three by five card, maybe, um, uh, they, they may still be able to tell that those aren't proficiency tests unless something's changed and they've more standardized what equipment is given out to the officers that are collecting these latents. But, um, no, I, I think that is definitely a step in the right direction. I would, love to be able to to um, move forward with a project like that uh, at my own agency yeah yeah well we'll keep an eye on that and see what uh, what what might develop hopefully hopefully we'll get something here in the next year or two yeah absolutely all right so I we're wrapping up our talk here of the PCAST report but I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention at least something and again, Eric, you were around when the NAS report came out, and you might recall that there were a host of agencies and organizations that responded with an official position statement to the NAS report. Yes. Well, uh, no different for the PCAST report. There were a number of official responses from agencies in their view of the report, uh, probably at least as many, maybe more than um, – in the NAS report, I was a little surprised at how many organizations had some, but a couple really stood out to me. Uh, one of the ones was the National District As Attorneys Association, the NDAA. Yes. And so if you just Google NDAA response to PCAST report, you'll find, a, what is it, a nine-page letter basically saying we don't we don't accept your report and as attorneys we're not going to listen to it and they really pick it apart and uh, frankly there's some pretty good arguments in there i, I won't go through the whole thing um but if if you want uh, if you if you if you're an examiner and you feel that this is going to be a big issue in this case and that your attorney is going to need to argue <laughs> yes. the, the validity of the PCAST report, I would highly recommend getting this and giving them a copy of it because it's really it's written by attorneys with a focus for attorneys. It's got some good legal language in there, uh, some good legal arguments, and then really um, focuses in on the different disciplines and some of the little tricks and nuances, you know, in particular – uh, the, the kinds of experts that are involved, uh, the declarations that are made uh, with respect to, you know, latent prints. There, there's not a lot in that letter, but they, they do talk about um, er one of the quote error rate issue is an issue of fact for experts to testify about and juries to resolve, not one of law. So it's really not for the judge to decide. Uh, if you're going to allow this kind of discussion, then let the expert talk about error rate, but then let jurors decide what to do with that. Don't, you know, um, not admit the evidence because of that. Yeah, I, that's one of the ones I did. I did read back when it first all came out, and uh, it, it, that's a, it was a fairly short response too, right? It was. Um, it, it well. No, I think initially it might have been shorter, but now it's uh, it's upwards of eight pages. Oh, okay. The other one I'm gonna the other one I'm gonna mention that is really short. It's only one page. Is the FBI's response, and that one I really liked too because it's only one page. <laughs> and in one page, they actually they say a lot. And I will say that I love that they start off by saying, 
um, you put this report in. We, we, we agree with you on one thing. We should have more funding. The FBI deserves more money to do this research. We agree with the PCAST on that issue. However, the rest of the report we disagree with and screw you. Um, the it, you know it, it, they take issue with them creating their own criteria for scientific validity and applying it to the various disciplines. They don't like their defining of black box studies as a benchmark to demonstrate foundational validity. Um, they seem to be um, disappointed that a number of other kinds of studies were not really reviewed or really considered thoroughly. Uh, they they feel that the report gets it wrong about databases that the people writing the report don't understand uh, the legal issues with databases, which has been always an, an ongoing battle of access to whether it's CODIS or APHIS or these kinds of systems. And, and they, you know, they, they, they bring out just a number of very quick short points in a one-page letter that basically says, we disagree with your approach. I, I think both of those letters are good for examiners to have. And again, if they think it's going to be an issue, wouldn't hurt to give your prosecutor, um, you know, as a as something to review and uh, to to discuss those issues. And then you pray that they actually read that email and read <laughs> read through. Um, you know, like, hey, uh, prosecutor, this is going to be an issue probably coming up because that's what the defense attorney asked me about in the, you know, interview or deposition beforehand. And then, yeah, you just kind of pray that they actually read it and, uh, you know, pay attention. Um, yeah, I, you know, in the next couple of months, I plan to talk to a bunch of defense attorneys and I'll be really curious to get their viewpoint on this. What do they think the report's going to actually do for them, uh, particularly when it comes to latents? I'm I'm curious how the report will be used against latent prints, since it essentially, again, if it's if it's if it's saying firearms and DNA mixtures doesn't pass the test, but latent <laughs> prints does, then you know it, it can't be all that bad for us. I mean, if if you think of it in those terms, yeah, I guess. Um, we we got we got a D plus from uh from PCAST. Um, uh, C minus. C- oh, C minus. I think okay. it's a C minus. Yeah, we got a C minus. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm 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 glass half full here. Like I said, you know, after NAS, everyone was just losing their minds about you know what was going to happen, and it wasn't that big a deal in the end. But um, yeah, I can't I can't think of a single instance for latent prints at least where evidence was not admitted based on the nas report and I, and there is that case i can't remember somewhere on the east coast where the nas report wasn't admitted <laughs> the defense tried to bring that, it in but... and the and the court ruled that the, the defense couldn't bring the nas report in um, yeah i think they're trying to bring it in as a Learned, learned treatise. treatise yes <laughs> right i think it was out of dc uh, dc jurisdiction somewhere around there yeah everything yeah. back east is kind of all the same you know back where the states are all real close together and stuff um <laughs> so yeah i think in the end it'll eventually blow over we do have to be ready for it just in case you're the unlucky one that that has to go down this rabbit hole but um there are the resources out there to be prepared for it. And, um, we have, uh, the data and the studies to, to talk about these issues. Um, and, um, hopefully, you know, everyone in the discipline can move past this and kind of get back on track with, um, moving forward to further improve the discipline with the things that we know we actually have to deal with. Yeah. I I think that's probably my take take takeaway point to any examiners listening is that it, if it's not already obvious and it hasn't already been said over and over in previous episodes it is really important to have read the the error rate studies to be informed on those and be able to talk about them if there's nothing else this report emphasizes the importance of those whether you look at it as a negative um 
emphasis or a positive emphasis, clearly there's an emphasis and you need to be able to discuss those. You can't, you can't have the position, I don't need to know those. They don't have anything to do with me. Those are just some studies that were done that doesn't affect any of my conclusions or how I'm going to present my conclusions. I think that would be a very naive view. Or even, well, I know they're good. They say we do good in fingerprints. <laughs> Yeah, we kind of need to know. <laughs> Maybe a little further explanation than that. So, yeah. Um, all right. Well, Glenn, uh, what do you have coming up here in the near future? Um, are you going to be traveling anywhere else? Uh, no, I'm. I'm. I'm done for quite a bit. The I have a class in. Let's see. I think there's a class in March, end of March, in the Los Angeles. Area. No, it's not right. There's a class in March <laughs> in Florida, in uh, near Orlando, and that's uh, March twentieth, I think, for the twenty fourth, like the third week in March, right around that early spring break time. And uh, that's an exclusion and sufficiency class, and then an exclusion and sufficiency class at the end of April in the Los Angeles area. So the East Coast, West Coast in spring. Sounds good. I also have that very same week, uh, March 20th, we'll be doing exclusionology up in Northern California. Um, and then in April in Nashville, and uh, May in Pennsylvania. Uh, wow, working. you are yeah, you, busy spring. Yeah, busy spring. Um, so, uh, you know, go to rayforensics.com to get more details about uh, all those classes. But um, uh, looking forward to to seeing everybody uh, in uh, in those areas. And uh, I think it'll be my first trip to Nashville, so I'm looking forward to that. Cool. Um, all right. Well, uh, thank you guys for listening, and thank you for all being patient while I. Uh, get back on the radio here. Uh, you can send us any questions or uh, well wishes. <laughs> you said radio. <laughs> uh, it's kind of what it feels like. Um, that's 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 how I explain it to people who don't know you know much about the internet. It's kind of like radio, but you can listen to it whenever you want to. Um, anyway, you can mail those questions in Eric at rayforensics.com or Glenn. G-L-E-N-N at EliteForensicServices.com And we're on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and iTunes And we'll talk to you guys here soon Bye everybody, have a good week <laughs>